Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense, your podcast dedicated to everything detection. So today I get to have fun interviewing a friend of mine. We are currently doing a seminar together and we thought we'd sit down and have a conversation about training and give you guys some different inputs and hear us kind of elaborate on the things that we've been doing and our feeling of uh, detection and where we see it today. Even though the background of my guest isn't exactly always detection related, it's always nice to get a different point of view from a specialty that is passionate for what they do and how it bleeds over to our detection. And with all that said, Mike, welcome to the show. Mike Nesbeth, everybody. Hey, uh, Cam, thanks for having me, man. Uh, yep. It's pretty uh, cool being here and doing this in person with you. You know, Yeah, versus always doing everything over the uh, you know phone or something else. So I give you a little round of applause there for everybody. <laughs> I see that, man. Pretty, pretty fancy uh, setup we got yeah. here. So... You know, for the people that don't know who Mike Nesbeth is, you know, there's a lot in the professional world that I know come across you from your experience and your training and your background in protection work. Uh, being a decoy is obviously what gets you like to a lot of places because that is a skill set that's, you know, unique. Uh, but how did you get into dogs and how did you find your passion and what you do right now? Um, yeah, I've always kind of been into dogs. I grew up with dogs like everyone else you know i, I had um springer spaniels i know you're, you're pretty into those right <laughs> those now. those little guys yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I grew up okay. with those um <laughs> you know went to school um for psychology uh long story long um you know did some kind of ca some counseling and like applied behavior therapy for a year or so i really okay. thought that's what i wanted to do turns out wasn't as uh rewarding <laughs> as i thought it was going to be yeah um, during that time i was you know, lucky enough to be working with dogs kind of as a hobby. I'm doing some obedient stuff here and there, okay. uh, but, and kind of fell into like the French ring uh, community as a training decoy, never a trial decoy for that. Really quickly while I was there, I was this was in South Florida. Um, we had some uh, local kind of law enforcement uh, handlers coming over and training at the field. And I was okay. like, oh, definitely gravitate towards that thing because it wasn't so... Um, routine and patterned. It was like, hey, they're doing different things every time I see them. Yeah, um, I really was drawn over to that, and that's kind of hit the ground running. So you, you, you know, ran into somebody who I know kind of uh, changed your path when it came to training and being a decoy, and that is Wayne Dodge. Yeah, so I, I you know, I didn't have, um, you know, as much time with Wayne as you mm -hmm. know, some other people, but yeah. I've, been around him uh, training in Ocala at a kennel out there when mm -hmm. I was really new to this. Mm -hmm. I mean, the work that I saw him do um, was very different from things that I was sure. seeing elsewhere, you know, my yeah. French ring club and, and so forth. So, I like, very limited time there with him actually working, mm -hmm. but very profound yeah, influence say, on, you know, the path that I decided to take. It doesn't take much time around Wayne to you know, realize this isn't the normal kind of decoy work that, you yeah. know, most do. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of raises the bar and what, like you said, it, the impact I've seen the, the other people that I know have been around him. Um, it, it raises that bar inside you to do things outside of that norm, which was always, like you said, uh, when it comes to decoy work, those that are listening that you know may not always know what the bite work entails. There's a lot of 
movement type things, prey oriented type behaviors from decoys. And with Wayne, it was much more real. It was much more like this. We are, you know, potentially this is a battle between man and dog kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, and like I said, I saw him doing things that I didn't know could be done or, sure. or, or were even like options Sure. Um, in, in this, you know, kind of working dog world and, and decoying world and um, to see how the dogs responded to the type of work and, and how he was working with them was super profound and, and like influencing how the path that I wanted to go down. You know, I know some people like my good friend, Carlos, you know, mm-hmm. uh, had got to spend quite a bit of time yeah. training with yeah. Wayne and, um, yeah, I, I just, you know, give the, give the flowers where they're due and you know, uh, definitely, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm, just those small interactions that I was able to have with him, big influence. Oh on yeah. Him. Who else would you say, like, what, what were things as you kind of progressed through, you know, you got into, like you said, you saw ring sport and you said, okay, this is something different and it got your attention to kind of get into doing dogs in a, in a new way than just being, like you said, a, a dog trainer in the typical pet obedience sense. Who are the trainers that you look up to and who do you follow? Like when you started and all the way to today, like who do you keep an eye on? Like constantly like, Ooh, I want to learn from that. Or I'm, I'm learning things from watching them do things. Yeah. Uh, good. Really good question. I was, you know, to this day, I, I still like, I, I feel super like blessed because now I feel like I have friendships mm-hmm. with the people that I actually look up to and, and, you know, I've called you plenty of times. I was like, sure. hey, what do you think about this? Or mm-hmm. what do you think, what would you do in this situation? You know, Justin Rigney, mm-hmm. um, Jay Nix, Carlos Ramirez, um, Mike Lilly, Mike yeah. Goosby, all like, and then more that I'm probably going to leave off the list sure. by accident. Yeah, no. um, but uh, back in the day, what I also realized is a lot of times I was seeing handlers without even knowing what I was seeing. I was seeing handlers doing things for the sake of doing things and not necessarily understanding why they were doing it. They may be doing the right things, mm-hmm. but it was very almost like robotic. And when I would ask questions, they didn't always have answers for mm-hmm. me. And I'm naturally kind of a curious person. Uh, so I wanted more information. And again, yeah. coming from that kind of psychology and you know learning theory background, it just you know put fire um, under me to really try and, you know, find some answers. Yeah. And it had to be a little bit of a struggle going from a science background, your education to then coming into dogs where most common answer is, well, we've always done it that way. Yeah. yeah. So how did you, you know, like you said, you had to kind of navigate through as anybody does when they get into dogs, like who do you, you know, okay, what's the BS from the real deal? Um, how did you kind of navigate through, um, dealing with those different pushback? Plus the other part that people, you know, you know, may or may not know, you don't come from law enforcement. You don't come from military. You come from academic and you in some circles are going to be looked at as, well, you're an outsider. You're not one of us. You're not the cop. You didn't wear a badge. You didn't wear a military uniform. What could you really know? How do you how do you get through that, or how have you gotten through that as you progressed as a trainer? Yeah, so really early on, I I didn't siphon out the bullshit versus excuse mm-hmm. my French. Oh, <laughs> you're, yeah, we're, we're this is a pay per view channel. We're All good, right, perfect. <laughs> I, I didn't cycle out the, the uh, nonsense um, from like the good valuable things because I just didn't know, yeah. you know, and and I was so kind of obsessed with just 
all things dog and dog behavior at the moment, I took in every piece of information I could get. And anyone mm -hmm. that was willing to kind of talk to me or let me just hang out and watch them work dogs, I was there doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was working at a kennel for free, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yep. uh, not being paid to yep. do that. Um, but in, you know, tons and tons of hours learning things that I, I, you know, thought at the moment were, wow, this is a really neat um, and new and exclusive way to train this behavior. And then, you know, a, a year later, I was like, oh, I'll never do that. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, it, it's something that I've tried to almost carry with me as I progress through this journey. I'm um, in that I'm, I don't get married to any of the ideas. You know, I don't I don't put my identity in like this is the the way mm -hmm. to decoy and the old, no, this is the way that I know how to decoy right now. Yeah. This is the way I know how to, you know, teach some obedience behaviors right now. I'm, I'm hoping in five years from now, there's a lot of drastic change in the way that I'm doing things because mm -hmm. maybe there's, there, there is better and more efficient ways out there, you know? Yeah, no. And you, you, you bring up some good points there because we had like today at the seminar, we had a good conversation that people, when they go to seminars, don't always get to be around where, you know, you, me, um, uh, one of my trainers, Lily Strasberg and Natalie Morris and, you know, a couple of uh, another ones from the uh, audience, uh, Rich from Police Dog Radio or Police Canine Radio, I should say. And um, Tony from the trainer here in town uh, from the Venetian, they had great questions. And yeah. those questions turn into us talking about ways of how we communicated and why we did things a certain way. And the things overall, I think when we walked away from that conversation was we kind of adapt a lot to what's presented to us by the dog, yeah. but also what's presented to us at that time. Like we see, okay, this works and we're pretty happy with it. But like you brought up, we're also not always married to it. So we're willing to change where many of the systems that have been out there won't change just for the fact of not wanting to change. Yeah, yeah. And I, I hoped that the people that were in attendance today, you know, listening to us kind of go back and forth with ideas like, okay, how do we do that? Going through like, well, this is the psychological answer to the question. Like we're talking about the use of condition reinforcers and yeah. uh, terminal condition reinforcer enforcer versus a keep going one and uh, keep going signal and things like that. And how those lines can get blurred based on a, a split second timing of reward delivery. Yeah, And it took us through that conversation and the fun part for me, you know, hearing that you talk about things and, you know, your perspective, because, you know, you're looking at it kind of in a new set of eyes from detection. Like you don't do detection every single day. Yeah. And my side, I do detection every single day. So certain things uh, I adapt because of, you know, going from a puppy to an adult, I'm teaching the same thing, but how I delivered the message was very different from a puppy to an adult. And that was, I think, was interesting for you, if I'm not mis you know. Yeah, mistaken. yeah, definitely, you know. Um, and to me, the, those are the kind of healthy, like, at our company, at Grassroots Canine, those are the kind of healthy conversations that we that we kind of chase and pursue. You know, we want to be able to have these open, like, hey, it's not disrespectful yeah. or anyone saying, hey, you're doing it wrong, but, yep. like, actually fostering an environment where, you know, to me, that's where learning happens, just like the dog's. Um, you know, they learn the most in that moment of struggle. Mm -hmm. um, so do we, right? Sure. So we need to struggle and kind of work our way through and, and, and have these come. No, you know mm -hmm. what? Well, my, my interpretation when I'm seeing this is this, or it, it, it may be that. And 
that's how you actually clarify communication, right? Mm-hmm. You say, okay, well, you know what? I, I like that. I'm definitely taking things from, you know, that conversation that we had. And I, and I hope that there was information um, for you and, oh, for and also sure. for, for everyone that got was attending the, the seminar, you know? Because like any trainer, we see it through our lens a lot. You know, we get used to, um, like for me, when you were asking a question about uh, the keep going signal, but it started off, and for the listeners, how the conversation started was we have what I have coined just the odor pays box. It matches those that know dopamine box and so forth. But while the dog is at this box, they're receiving a click while they're focusing on odor. They receive a click and then reinforcement, click, reinforcement. And we were talking about, well, what's the difference between is this click a terminal bridge, which means the exercise is over? But we're not really applying it that way. It's more applied similar to a keep going because the dog's never really leaving the box and resetting. So you and I were having the conversation about, well, is it a terminal bridge or is it keep going? And the unique part, the so I'm so used to doing that because like I was saying with puppies, the clicker disconnected the human aspect because when I used to use like a word like good, and if I would say good is a keep going and drop the food and keep that going good. Sometimes just hearing me say something would pull that puppy out of the box and want to engage with me where a mechanical device like the clicker made it straightforward. They, they kept doing it. And then after let's say three, four reps, whatever it is, I then use the jackpot, the terminal bridge, I'll say free. And then they come out of the box and they can come get a toy. And that's where we are like going, okay, but technically clicker can be terminal, but how we were yeah, applying it. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, we were basically, trying to figure out because in sometimes in some context and really to also help clarify, I think to me, to you and, and to the audience, the, the audience mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it, it's not just about the tool, the clicker in this instance, but how this clicker is being used. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, sometimes if, if we kind of charge our clicker as a terminal marker, and then sometimes we use it as a, a keep going signal, um, it, it can muddy the waters sure. for dogs, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Hey, do you want me to, stay over here or am I supposed to have this kind of marker that uh, is this celebration and this event yep. where I, I head back to you and, and you pay, it's that, are, are we doing, you know, the food's being delivered or is it curbside pickup, yep. right? And, and yep. really clarifying that because to me, when something's classically conditioned and we have mm-hmm. that conditioned marker, what we, we don't want the dogs to have to be cognitive and, and thinking, right? It should yep. be an involuntary response. And it was really just trying to clear, clarify, clarify, sorry, um, that, that that's how it was going to be used in this context and, and only in that way. So the mm-hmm. clicker wouldn't be used with those dogs to sometimes keep them in the box mm-hmm. but, or sometimes release, release them. them from the yeah. box. It would just be a, a different marker for, for your release. And, and what was even more fun about that conversation, because it made me kind of rethink, um, I had to explain, well, but you're right. When I do adults, when I get an adult dog in, not a puppy I raised, I use, I don't use a clicker at that box. I use good and I'm dropping the food because when I've used clicker in the, in the past, some dogs, because they're already adults, we got them, knew what a clicker was. So when they heard the click, they'd pop out of the box. And that's not what I wanted at that time. Because what we were doing is we were, like I said, we were building duration and getting the dog to be proofed off of me as a handler so I can move around while they're in odor, put my hand in my pocket click, keep going, click, keep going. And then all of a sudden, despite whatever I'm doing, I say free and then they come out and we do this. So I had to, because when I'm explaining it in my head or when you guys are watching, you're seeing something like, 
okay, well, there's a clicker in this incident or in this instance, and then it's a word in this instance, uh, and then you're like, but wait, why is it this and here? And I and for me, just being autopilot to it, I'm like. I had to sit back and go, oh, yeah, well, with puppies, I do clicker because of this. Yeah. Adults, it's words because of this. And then, yes, in that sense, it's definitely the keep going marker when it's that word. So it was like we're talking about. It's communication, you know, being clear about that. Yeah. And and for, you know, because we're kind of dog geeks and, you know, we yeah. can really we can get deep down into the weeds on these mm-hmm. things. And really, I think what I took from it is like there's value in having like outside eyes coming in yeah. and just saying, because it's things that you do and you have success with already, um, that there's nuances that kind of intricacies that slip through the cracks just because you know what you're doing in those moments, right? And and it's normal and that's the system that you have set up, but it's just so normal that for, for you that an outside eye might just be like, hold on, what, but I thought we were just using it in this way. And then yeah. Giving you the opportunity to say, Oh yeah, you know what I am making? Cause I, when I'm decoying, I do the same. Sometimes sure. I need the question to be like, why did I do that? Yeah. This is why I did yeah. that. Right. Not even in the moment. Cause it's off of feel so often too. Exactly. You know, even though we're applying, let's say a methodology that's related to a scientific principle, but when you do something for so long, it becomes second nature and you just do things because you've seen it so many times and you can kind of, you know, good dog trainers can be preventative. You know, they see the little spark before it becomes a small flame, before it becomes a fire, then an inferno. And the more you work, you work dogs and you're around dogs, you see sparks and then you can quickly adjust. And we, the more time you have, you do it off of instinct. And, where a new person may not even notice it until it's a full-blown fire. Yeah. And they have to start to, the more experience they get, they start realizing how to read the dogs and go, oh, so when you saw that specific thing, or if you're teaching this, you're teaching this at this point this way, because four more steps down the line, you've already solidified or built a good foundation where the dog knows when these other things that are coming down the pike later on, mm-hmm. they already know how to navigate it. Yeah. And I think like a, a really good example for that, for like you and I both know, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners will know some dog trainers that are amazing dog yeah. trainers, right? Mm-hmm. Way better than you and I will ever be. Sure. Right. Oh yeah. But what is lacking on, on some of their ends is communicating their skills and what they're doing to other people. Sure. Right. So it, 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 I look at those dog trainers, like those like artists, Mm -hmm. right. That you give them a paintbrush and they're going to paint an amazing, beautiful painting, but they can't teach you how to paint that painting. They feel it. They understand these things, but they can't articulate Mm -hmm. how to, you know, what I try and do is uh, be able to the information that I do have. None of it is what I created myself. Uh, be able to kind of pass that on, you know, and yeah. say, hey, this is what I've learned. This is why I'm doing it this way. Um, and hopefully you can take that, tweak it a little bit, and and it helps adjust what it helps your program. And what yeah. Doing. No, and, and, you know, I think, like you said, as people, you know, let's say due to social media or due to the access of lots of videos and things that weren't around and, you know, except for the past, say, 10, 15 years, you you don't get those little nuances from what you see in a video. Um, The biggest struggle I've had with producing online courses is as a instructor, 
I'm always thinking of, well, how would this be replicated by somebody who's not as familiar with this? Yeah. And how do I explain this and try to forecast potential errors that they can navigate? But what if I forget that one error yeah. or that forget that one way of interpreting like, like the conversation today, you know, this yeah. is why I do this is why I do that. Because to me, it's second nature. So I may not think of that, that moment. Um, the, so I want to share the information, but I feel this responsibility to make sure I do it as best as I possibly can, because yeah. trying to learn things through video is so extremely hard, but yet so extremely easy. It's so yeah. accessible. Yeah. But it's so hard to interpret what you see on a, on a video or a, a description. Um, I, I feel for a lot of people trying to learn, but yet the hunger to get information mm -hmm. can be so easily satisfied by just hopping online for 10 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's it's tough, which is why we do the seminars that we do. So that way we can get people in person. And, and I strive to uh, implore listeners you know, even though I'm a, a producer of videos and podcasts and things like this, the best is reading about it. Then going out, like you said earlier, being there in person, yeah. what can I do? How can I watch this? Can I help you engross yourself in it? Even in the most, you know, simple ways, Hey, I'll just hold the leash just so you guys can do this and learn by proxy. And that's you. I'm sure you did. I know when I first got into canine, I did a lot of decoy work and yeah. my way in was decoy work yeah. by being that young kid willing to take all the bites and get beat up and go lay tracks and go hide in buildings and lay in cabinets and all that crazy stuff is what got me exposed to hearing a dog going. <laughs> and then when I became a handler, when I saw that happen at like a doorway or a cabinet, I'm like, Ooh, I've heard that as a decoy, yeah. my dog might find somebody. Yeah. And you know, those little skill sets and you know, Plenty of people, I think, want to intern, and interning is great. You also have to have the mindset of you're going to do a lot of stuff that has it's not all the cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it pays dividends by being there in person and, and seeing these things and watching it over and over again. And the more people you see and more dogs you see go through things, like, again, like, like today, watch the different dogs do things. It helps you like, oh, I mean, I think, again, sitting in the chair as a spectator in today, how many people got to walk away with like, see that I would have never thought of that, that conversation that popped that if I wasn't there in person, that would have never been seen in a video. That's not yeah. something that you're going to see in a photo. Yeah. And, and you know, again, speaking on that, but like the conversation, it's kind of like what we're, what we're doing right now, right? Like these conversations um, and, and these questions that come up. Uh, Although, it, it, you know, it, it may be beneficial um, for those listening. A lot of times I'm doing it out of selfish interest, right? Sure, like, I'm yeah, like, yeah. hey, I actually just want to know. I <laughs> feel like at points I'm hijacking things, but like, <laughs> sure. I, I want to know what's going on. Yeah. Um, the other thing that you're saying is about people getting out there and getting their hands on on dogs and, and trying to just get as much experience as they can. I believe that they should do it, but they also should, should be realistic with themselves, mm -hmm. right? A, a lot of people think that this is for them, yeah. um, but oh, you don't sure. know until yep. you get your... your your hands dirty um, and, and get into it. And, and, you know, if, if you learn it's not for you, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I think there's a ton, a ton of value and a ton of new things actually that bringing new people into this world and, and from outside eyes or, you know, from the academic world mm -hmm. or from, you know, biology, the biology world and any, just all different venues. I think there's a bunch of information that's still, you know, waiting to be kind of discovered in, yeah. in, in new ways that can help us do what we're 
doing. For sure. So speak, how did you, like, what was impactful on you as far as, as you started doing, going to the path of training and you, like you said, you were working dogs and seeing things, seeing things. What were, like, what was a book that got your attention? What was something that you're like, Ooh, I really, this is putting a fire in me to become better. Yeah. I wouldn't even say at, at that, those early stages, it was books really. Okay. Um, to me, I was really obsessed uh, about behavior and, and changing behavior, right? Being, again, from the background I was coming from, one of the reasons why that counseling uh, mm-hmm. didn't work for me uh, was because there was no actual changes in behavior <laughs> yeah. occurring, right? Yeah. So being able to kind of see tangible results and progressions in, in a short amount of time mm-hmm. uh, was really reinforcing to me. Um, and then it made me want to do more and more. And then it went from teaching a dog to sit to teaching a dog to bite. Mm-hmm. And then oh, teaching a dog to bite to teaching a dog to track. And then all of us, the more I did it, the more I realized teaching a behavior is teaching a behavior. It doesn't yeah. matter what the actual behavior is we're teaching. There are some core principles uh, and, and things that we need to follow. And, mm-hmm. it, and it all kind of comes together. It's all under that same mesh. And that's when like, you know, light bulbs started going off for me. Mm -hmm. So as you progress, because I know a lot of listeners do like to know, uh, like, what are things that top trainers, you know, read and get into? What are books that have through no matter what in your career? Because we we talked about a couple of them the past couple of days. What are some of the ones that you would say, hey, I'm a younger aspiring handler or trainer. Um, These are really good books or sources of information that will be guide points along your path. Yeah. So I definitely, there's the way that I read books is a little bit different. So mm-hmm. if, if I make like a book recommendation, it doesn't mean I'm recommending the entire book sure. and everything yeah. in it, you know, yeah. I, I, or agree with everything in it. I'm definitely, totally, yeah, I understand. Um, one of the, you know, books that I think all aspiring trainers should read or anyone that's, I think any human should read it to mm-hmm. be honest with yeah. you, um, is animals make us human. Um, okay. Temple Grandin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's so much information in there, uh, and I've probably read it probably about three times. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, there's a lot, and every time I read it, there's like new things that I take from it. Um, another, What's profound about it to you that you that's good for the person to go? You know what? Yeah, I, I think it one it tells us a lot about ourselves in in how we treat and interact with these animals. Uh, I think something that was missing for a little bit in, in the canine world or working dog world what was like proper animal husbandry mm-hmm. um you know and and it really goes into you know kind of she doesn't like the word enrichment in the book yeah, but yeah, you yeah. know in, in enrichment and, and how we can she doesn't specifically go into generally manipulating behavior and how you can mm-hmm. use that but i really have taken from those kind of uh core principles that she has in there some core emotional system, emotional systems. And that's mm-hmm. what we, my presentation was based off of this okay. week. Um, yep. and how we can channel that into the different avenues that we use. Yeah. For me, it was her talking about context and contextual learning. Yeah. And it resonated with me when she was, and I, you know, as you know, I used that example in the class this week as well. Um, how an autistic child would learn, um, the example of the, Hey, this is a car. Um, here's a photo of a car. This is a car. And, uh, the child goes, okay, yep, that's a car until you show another picture of a car. That's not the previous picture, but it's still a car. They'll say, I don't get that. 
And that's not a car. Yeah. The other picture is a car. And dogs contextually learned very similar. Yeah. You know, you present to them in this case, since this is a detection podcast, this is a detect this is an odor I want you to find. And depending on how that odor is presented, uh what containment was it in? How was it stored? What was, what's the purity level? All these myriad of things that exist on that particular training aid that you're going with and saying, Hey dog, this is chemical X insert cocaine bomb, you know, no uh, essential oil, et cetera, et cetera. And the dog's like, okay, got it. This is the one until you present one not related to how you do all those things. And the dog goes, Hmm, similar but not the one and walks off and we take for granted that because i taught the dog this particular odor it must automatically know this odor in no matter how it gets presented in in all different contexts yeah and there's so much assumption based on that and we talked about you know the importance of uh understanding mixtures and how to present mixtures you know mixtures are a great thing but the assumption that just because the dog can smell multiple chemicals at one time, that they're automatically going to know, oh, no matter what, if any one of these chemicals are present, I'm just going to automatically know it. And we yeah, know yeah. that that's not true either. We, we take that beef stew theory as gospel, and we're not disagreeing that the dog can smell multiple things, but you don't know which one they took away with when you introduce this. And then quickly add a reinforcer to it. Which one did they associate the reinforcement to? You know, and there's arguments to both sides of that, even on the when you're trying to be as pure as possible, because there, there's really no such thing as pure. There's going to be some form as far as as our level. If you're at a laboratory, yes, you can get to pure levels and you can measure and all that kind of stuff. But the average dog handler working a dog is never going to have a pure level. So what we have to do is proof off of those things that we can distinguish that this is not a target and present that by itself and say, Hey, this plastic bag or this Q-tip is not relevant. It's only relevant if this chemical is there and we are not always the best because of the assumption we made is, well, if, if it's present, I've trained them on this, they'll know this. And that what Temple Grandin showed was the, in the contextual learning that that wasn't always the case, but it goes even beyond that. The stuff that you do. Yeah. I, I, I feel like that. All of her books are like in, in presentations and in papers that she, they, they all are like littered with a ton of different gems, you know, for us. Yeah. Um, I, one of the other books that I, I uh-huh. like is um, The Compass of Pleasure. Okay. Um, it's a, a pretty, not directly related to, to dog training, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's about what it sounds like it's about. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and just different ways. I thought it was a place in Vegas. <laughs> well, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was on the schedule for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I do live in Sin City, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is about pleasure, not that kind of pleasure. There, there's probably a chapter in there that's on that. Could be. Um, but, you know, tying that in and, and, and how that works and across species, you know, what's the purpose of pleasure? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, kind of gets into like, you know, biochemical yeah. responses that the bodies give. And uh, it, it was, I found it really interesting from a theoretical standpoint. Yeah. Now, that's a good one. And what I'll try to do is we'll try to link those in there uh, into the show notes. Now, you know, moving forward, when we were doing the seminar this week in your classroom uh, portion, give us that, like you said, you brought in some of the stuff from Temple Grandin. Give us a little teaser what it's about because you and I are going to be doing more of these uh, seminars in person about the 
puppy and young dog development. So some listeners can hear some of the things that you're going to, that you bring up. What are like, give us that little snippet. Like you talked about, you know, what's a piece that you have in this so listeners can kind of understand what we're talking about when we were talking about young dog development. Yeah. So, you know, maybe not specifically tied right away to what Temple Grandin is saying, but I, I think when it comes to young dog development, um, we have to first initially, you know, have a purpose specifically assigned to what we want that dog to do. It's not, let me get a dog and then figure out what we want to do with it. Because if we don't start with the right genetic beginning for mm-hmm. what our end goals are, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen or we're not going to operate very efficiently in what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, my second point is then from that point, we have to prioritize, okay, I got this dog. I, I really want to compete in nose work with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want it to be also like a really good pet and go on hikes yeah. with me all the time. Well, I tell clients or people that I deal with, which one of those two things is more important to you? Mm-hmm. Is it the hiking or is mm-hmm. it the nose work? Or is it the barn hunt? Or, or is it the dock the diving? Hunt? Or is it the rally? Because exactly. they, they do just, you know, they never yeah. just do the one thing. <laughs> yeah. It's the five things yeah. and four things conflict with nose work. Yeah. So. so I say, okay, let's, nose work is the most important, yeah. right? That's what they decide. Then, okay, then we're going to build our, our next step is, is our plan for that dog's life. And mm-hmm. when I'm saying plan, you saw how, how I break down the plans. It's yep. almost on a day-by-day basis. Correct. Uh, and and we really put a, a, a plan that is, you know, actionable. Um, but also we want to be able to, you know, track and, and measure some type of progression and results. Yeah. Um, so those are the, the three steps and a really brief kind of outline of, of what I'm I'm looking for and what I believe is will be helpful for people um, yeah. when it comes to, you know, young dog development and, and puppy raising essentially. No, in, in that plant, like you break it down into different stages too, which is really cool to see, um, you know, the different behaviors and this is what you, what's your plan to deal with this and what's your plan to deal with that. And knowing that this young dog is going to go through these different stages and you have to be ready for those and make sure that your training makes the most out of it or, doesn't uh or when the dog's going through a certain stage let's say one of those fear periods you're not doing training that makes that fear period even worse yeah, or exactly. uh you know like you said and understand the genetics um behind the dog and, and you and i were both talking in the lectures about genetics mm-hmm. um the importance of understanding why the dog is doing what it does you know um why herding dogs do things that way and why sporting dogs do this yeah yeah and we, and we specifically you know you were making that reference and i was kind of laughing during the presentation mm-hmm. because uh I talk about you know recently we had we had a, a pointer mm-hmm. um, an english pointer that my wife really wanted to get to raise <laughs> to sell yeah um, and i was like all right let's do it let's give it a shot pointers are pretty cool um really early on in that uh puppy's development not maybe around i want to say five or six months I was like, hey, this, I was ready to say, hey, this dog doesn't have what it takes sure. for the job that we yep. need. And my wife, being the compassionate person that yep. she is, was like, no, just give him some more time and we'll see. And I, I started to realize that, no, I'm looking at this pointer like I look at a Malinois yeah. or I look at yeah. a, a German Shepherd. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he wasn't showing me like 
possession over the over the item and you know i could just take the ball out of his mouth really easily <laughs> yeah, and yeah. he's like okay whatever and, and i'm looking at you going don't you want that <laughs> yeah, and i was like no i need him to be obsessed <laughs> with this thing so he'll hunt. we spend so much time fighting dogs to get <laughs> let go and again a dog that finally goes here you go and you're like no i don't want that yeah, and, and i think it's value to again the, those outside eyes right because now i can sit back and get the ten thousand foot view and be like yeah. you know, i'm crazy for thinking that sure right? like it, the dog would outperform you know our Malinois puppies on you know, that are around the same age um, for the duration and intensity of, of his hunt for that item. He would hunt for the item, find the item, kind of pick it up, walk around with it for a bit, bring it back, like what I got, and then ready to go out and hunt again. Mm-hmm. Like that was actually hunting was way more important to him than just hunting for that item. Yeah. It was the reinforcing was the hunt itself. Exactly. Right. And then when he found, he's like, okay, found it. Let's go find another yeah, one. Like, you know, come on, yeah. let's do some more. Yeah. And, and, it, and it is. You know, is <laughs> dating myself now, but when I got into dogs uh, in the late '90s, German Shepherds was it. Yeah. Their Malinois were looked at as like, uh-uh, those dogs are nuts. When when did you get into dogs? <laughs> and if you look at see that certificate, where is it? Right there it says Canine Incorporated. Okay. The blue one down the bottom uh, left, right there. Can you see the date? I think it says 1905. <laughs> 1995. <Damn. laughs> yeah. So it, in at that time, it was, uh, like I said, it was shepherd only. And yeah. it was funny because, you know, I love the German shepherd. I was a diehard shepherd guy to a certain degree, but man, I was intrigued by the Malinois. Yeah. Cause I was like, Ooh, those things have something that these shepherds don't. So I go to the military, and the first dog I get is a Malinois. The Malinois had been more embraced in the military by that time. So I get a Malinois, and it had definitely changed my you know view of how to work yeah. a dog. I couldn't do what you're bringing up. I was so used to training a breed, in this case a German Shepherd, mm-hmm. that the techniques that were very successful with those genetics and that type of breed mm-hmm. were not exactly so great when it came to a Malinois. And I had to really adjust. And then the early parts of my career when I came, got out of the military was sharing that information because the law enforcement world was just starting to look at Malinois, but they did the same thing that I did and many others did, which was, oh, you just train it like a German Shepherd. Yeah. You, you you crack the whip like crazy. You spin them up and you make them nuts yeah. because that's what you did with German Shepherds. And that wasn't the case. And it's so funny because um, in the detection side of the world, Labradors have been, let's say, the number one dog. Yeah. And they're they're pretty easy going, but you do have to step on the gas pedal for certain things. You get that pointer or that spaniel, or the other ones. No, you, the gas pedal's already down. They need they, some wusa. Yes, they have. To, and the other part is stay out of their way. Mm-hmm. You know, we were, we were so ingrained uh, in, in a lot of methodologies and detection that you have to present. Present here, present there, present there. And a lot with those breeds, want you out of their way they will search the space your job becomes at that point what did they maybe miss and then make sure they check that but the rest of it stay out of their way because you working that dog like a lab actually inhibits their skill set or what they're naturally genetically designed to go do which is air set really well yeah yeah and and, you know understanding those breeds and understanding where you know they're coming from um and characteristics that are, are specific to those breeds mm-hmm. um, pays dividends. You know, I think that that pointer with me was a great example of that. I've, I didn't think he 
was going to even be close to making it. Yeah. And, and he, you know, was the first one to go. He made it. Yeah. And, and was, you actually saw, I think, the past couple of days, the first pointer I ever did, which is that 14-year-old pointer. Okay. That's the, that's the first yeah. one I ever did, and that's the oh, one wow. that, that John has there. Uh, that was a dog that taught me to get out of the way. <laughs> and you see how see how big he is at 14 years old? Yeah. That dog, man, I had to earn my paycheck training that dog because it made me go outside my comfort zone. I didn't know how to deal with this dog. Yeah. Finally, I just relented and held the leash and said, like, okay, fine. You think you can do this? Do it. And I was like, holy cow, he is doing it. Like, no matter what I did, he <laughs> would find it. it. He's got it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, so being willing to understand those breeds and those genetics uh, is tremendous as far as the value you get in actually becoming a good handler or trainer. You cannot just cookie cutter train all of them the same way absolutely and and having that appreciation for the genetics and those breeds and and doing your homework what does this breed what is it bred to do you know the biggest one of the best episodes i've really enjoyed doing this podcast was the episode i did with uh bart rogers and craig koshik okay and craig i don't know if you know who he is he's actually a fellow canadian yeah, yeah. an amazing historian of breeds and he can tell you so much about each breed and what it does. And he runs sporting dog magazines and podcasts himself. That was just so enlightening hearing somebody who really, you know, stuff I knew through my experience, but he knew the history of it yeah. and then broke it down into like the subcategories of like, oh, a pointer is not just a pointer. It's also a flusher. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. And, and and you saw those characteristics as a handler. And, and then in my experiences too. Um but I never respected them. Yeah. You know, and, and you think, and you know, again, it's, it's one of those things. It's why I, I really love working with dogs because mm -hmm. it's ever evolving mm -hmm. um, for me, you know, the information that I have, the things that I think I know, which I later find out that I don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and when you, you kind of touched on uh, people following those cookie cutter methods, uh, you know, I, I think having a cookie cutter method in place, um, I can see why people would want sure. that, right? Like it, it, it's it comfortable. Makes, I know it. It's, it's, it's a system predictable. to follow. Step one, step mm -hmm. two, and, and you get there. And when we start moving away from cookie cutter methods, it can get a little bit messy, right? You, we, what do I do when this happens? So well, for for us, you know, we have you know a flu, a few locations and a, a few employees, and what we try and you know impart on them is like, hey, we're we're not following cookie cutter methods, but what we are following is you know, our operant conditioning and mm -hmm. our classical conditioning. And, and the, that's our framework that, that we're going to work within. So how we apply that to each dog is going to have to be different. Right? Yeah. Um, because no two dogs are the same, but as long as we're within that framework and yep. it makes sense there, yep. have at it. Yeah, for sure. So how did you, what was your interest or how did you get into detection? What was, what drew you in? Because like you said, the, the decoy and the biting initially was what got you into detection. What do you like about it? What do you see yourself doing going forward? Yeah, I think that detection um, one uh, is kind of the future of where dogs are going. Obviously, it's part of the past, but it's yeah, the future yeah. of where dogs are going to go and continue to go further and find new things. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of novelty of like what can be next yeah. um, is exciting to me. Uh, two, I think it's one of even when I was doing bite work. I was really enjoying the almost the detection aspect of bite work, right? Mm -hmm. Like the let's see this dog go work by himself mm -hmm. um, or herself in this building and and really kind of problem solve and have to put pieces together. Yeah, um, and, and really observing dogs doing that 
um, was really captivating to me. And I was like, hey, so then, you know, that's where the tracking came in. Um, and, you know, odor, working odor is working odor, <laughs> yeah. right? So yep. then putting them on these, okay, so then I said, hey, you know, maybe tracking is kind of a semi-natural thing for a dog to do. Um, you know, hunting for prey mm-hmm. or it, it is kind of a natural thing for a dog to do it. We can interject and we, we can put these odors yeah. um, and that aren't really natural for them to want to find and make them have that kind of intensity and commitment to go find it. Be so committed to go find it that they'll, they'll work until they're about to drop. And then when they get there and they have all that energy, they'll bottle it up and sit. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. To me, that's pretty impressive, you know, or and that's kind of what captivated me. And I was like really drawn to it. What would you say is your biggest challenge that you've seen in detection both as a as what you watch from afar as a trainer but you personally like "Mm, that's that takes i gotta i gotta learn more about that um to be honest with you i I, the science behind it you know because again like we talked about this week the science is one of those things that's ever evolving Mm -hmm. um you'll see you know some information that comes out and says, well, this now is the way that it should be done. <laughs> yeah. And then the next week there's some information that comes out and it says, contradicts no, that one. This is the only way it's yeah. contradicting to this. So, you know, yeah. really, but that's what we're at when I value these relationships, you know, mm-hmm. I can, you know, call and talk to people and say, Hey, at that mo- moment, I kind of just say, Hey, who's being really successful with what they're doing? Mm-hmm. Whose dogs have I seen that are, are, are working mm-hmm. really well? Mm-hmm. I'm going to reach out to those people and talk to them. And mm-hmm. a, a lot of people have been, pretty receptive you know sure. i'm saying it's not this age of like hiding my information and this is a like hey this is what i do and yeah. this works for me and i would say detection you're right detection in comparison to the patrol side of things detection is pretty open like people are more open about yeah. uh sharing information and hey i went through this or i try this or and it's funny it's also equally divided like you must pay at source person yeah, yeah, or you must be, you know, marker person or whatever. Uh, you are cocktail or you are not cocktail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Little, little try. Yeah. Right? They're, they're, it, it still exists no matter what side of that world you're on. Um, but yeah, I, and that, you know, to me too was interesting is um, there's so much to learn. So much to learn. Yeah. It's, it's always, it's always there. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Go right ahead. For in in detection right now, what what is kind of the most challenging thing for you that, that you find you're facing? Ooh, good question. <laughs> the most challenging thing, honestly, is educating the handlers to trust the process, to understand how important it is to stick to the process and to not rush through it. Detection is not a skill that's done in a matter of weeks. It's not something that you can truly get away going, okay, I'll start off at step A, B, C. Oh, the dog, the dog's doing good at C. Let's jump over to G now and see how well G is. And you might see some success at G. So therefore you're like, well then, I'll go to the next one, H, I, oh, crap, I and K aren't so great. Let's go back to G. Well, with G wasn't really solid to begin with because you jump from C, you miss D, E, and F. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, again, uh, as a, a handler or even a trainer seeks out information 
to deal with the holes they have at G, they bounce around. They may go see somebody who teaches T, which is way down the line, but it had some relation to G. And they, they try that. Well, that didn't work because that is way too far down the line. So then they jump over to another one. And that trainer trains this thing, which is that yeah. different letter. And then by the time they decide, oh, I should go back to D where I left off because I saw C was so good. Themselves as handlers and the dogs have experienced different, so many different techniques. The level of confusion is there. And when I come into the picture, a lot of times as doing a seminar um, or someone reaches out to me to, hey, can you help me solve this problem? It's because they didn't follow the plan. Mm -hmm. They didn't follow the system because I'll say I'm the first to say there's a lot of different and I've had to adjust myself. There's a lot of different methods that will work. But just like a lot of things in dog training, if you jump from one you know, methodology to another methodology, confusion sets in, not clarity. And though you are seeking clarity, you are getting more confused. In many cases, the dog is. Because back to that contextual aspect of pictures and saying the dog, this is what this is. If you start throwing out all different kinds of pictures Mm -hmm. because you think they're all a car, the dog doesn't get it. Yeah, yeah. And then you scratch your head and you wonder why. So I stress so hard um, for people to slow it down, take some time. You know, you and I talked about it. I have to, as a business now, tell customers, I'm only going to work with customers who are going to follow the process because I want you to be successful. And even if it means making you slow it down and in some cases be uncomfortable because it's not going as fast as you want, it'll pay off. You know, I want you to reap those rewards and not spend your dog's whole career chasing these various different symptoms of problems when the main thing was you didn't start off and stick with the thing. So there's a, I love this hearing that, or I heard this saying and I love using it and repeating it, which is, you know, how do you build something really good? Well, you start off with everybody's answers, the strong foundation. No, you need the blueprints yeah, that told yeah. you what the foundation was so that's then that, you can build the plan. rest of the building. Yeah. That and, and that's why I loved when you brought up plan in your part of the seminar, because I look at every training session has to have a plan. And what's so tough, you know, the double-edged sword for me traveling uh, going to seminars, people look at you as the Messiah. Oh, you're coming here to solve my problem. You know, I know you deal with it when it comes to bite work. So you know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes, where it's coming at from different angles. So they come to you, they've paid money. They want a result. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I have to say is I'm here for three days. I promise you, I'm not going to fix your dog. I don't have any magic fairy dust in my pocket. I'm going to sprinkle over you and everything's going to do well. Yeah, they don't let you fly with that. Yeah, that's true. That's why I keep it here. Come to Vegas. The magic fairy dust is here in Vegas. So, but it's, but what I've learned now is I generally start with that power of fundamentals. Um, And even if I get the, even what's really spread now, which is helpful is the canine cognition and you got a little taste of that. So I'm going to flip this back at you and say this because cognition was new to you. You can give this to relate. You can relate to this to people who haven't seen cognition and even relate it to those in bite work too. What did you take away from that? Yeah. So um, I was, I I got to do that online uh, course. Mm -hmm. I think it's, 
the Corsair, the one with Brian Corsair, here, canine cognition and emotion. Exactly. Yeah. I did that one uh, maybe about a year ago, and I, I was speaking to uh, you know a professor that you put me in contact with um, up in Canada for mm-hmm. a while now. We don't know if I'm allowed to say anything. So yeah, you, can, you can you can totally say it. Yeah. No, I don't know if I'm allowed. Oh, on that, on that side, anything. yes. Okay. So no. Just, yeah, we'll keep the uh, that stuff secret. Yeah, yeah. But we're, we're we're working on some. Remember, detection's there. wide open. You can say anything you want. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to ruin my opportunity. <laughs> I know. <but. laughs> no, keep that to yourself. But um, yeah. And I'm I'm sure, I'm sure once it does get going, she would love to come on yeah. here and, and oh, yeah. do some stuff with you. But um, so what I got from you know that, that canine cognition on the little bit of information that I had was like it's definitely um, I, I think that there there are potentially some some very you get some very useful information um, you know when it comes to you know the different test batteries and, and the results that you get at the end of it. Um, I I see benefit in you know, how you are potentially selecting um, dogs, you know, even for pet dogs, pet dogs, you know, just your single purpose detection dogs, um, your dogs that that are going to be dual purpose dogs, um, but definitely like potential for selection there. Um, I think that, you know, when it comes to putting together again, that, that plan, um, you know, if we can have any bit of insight and information on our particular dog and, and, and figuring out ways that we can, set up effective and clear communication with that mm-hmm. type of dog um, can only work to your benefit, right? And, and only help us to say, okay, well, I've dealt with a dog uh, with these types of characteristics before. You know, this has been proven to kind of be a little bit more successful with these types of dogs. So we're going to go down this path with this one and, mm-hmm. and adjust accordingly, you know? Yeah. And it's good that, you know, and you have – more experience with cognition than the mo than most, but it's still new to you. So it's nice Definitely. for you to hear or nice to you to share uh, that you saw those things because that's like you said the biggest takeaways for most because most don't get to select you know they've already bought their dog or they already own yeah, their dog. Yeah. Um, so I always share with them, hey, look, you know the cognition is going to tell you a lot about what you know about your dog, but it's also going to highlight some things that you didn't know that are critical to success in communication with your dog. Absolutely. I, re- I really like the, the part um, where we talked about like, you know, really early on in some of those puppy cognition tests, mm-hmm. um, there being some things that become kind of crystallized. Yes. And like there's no difference from that, you know, three month old puppy to a year old, you know, year and a half old dog. Those things stay the same. But what was even cooler was that, that there were things that could be manipulated uh, outside of those crystallized, but yeah. you know, characteristics, uh-huh. um, we say something that we're like, ah, oh, you know, we need to try and adjust this a little bit to help us with where we want to go. Yep. You know, you have that information and you have that insight, you can a- adjust accordingly. Especially within that window of time. Exactly. You know, that critical window of time of that young puppy where they're still malleable as far as like skill sets and you yep. can make some, you can do some things to help change potential outcomes in how they learn. Yeah. Um, I, I think with the canine cognition as well, like it's, it's, cool in that it puts names yeah. to things that we, knew, we all kind of we know yeah. like we there's you know and, and it takes again kind of like the the mythology out of a portion of what we're doing right yep. it's like the when we talk about the stew theory and detection yeah. or yep. we say well this dog is just really man this dog remembers everything i do this dog <laughs> you know if i stare at this wall he knows there's something going mm-hmm. on over here so like things that we can observe but haven't been able to like get tangible results from Mm -hmm. or call it something you know Mm -hmm. i think that it it gives you know power to that as well yeah for sure and uh you know i 
the struggle I have is, you know, but just because I do detection all the time, everybody assumes cognition is related to detection. Yeah. And it's not. It's no. related to anything you do with dogs, any type of training that you do. If you do ring sport, you do police canine, you don't do detection at all, you do assistance dogs, pet obedience, knowing how to evaluate that dog in front of you, how it takes in information and how it learns is critical to your success as a trainer. Yeah. And really, honestly, if you're in a business or you have deadlines, knowing this information makes you more efficient on your timelines. You won't spend so much time spinning your wheels trying to try this, try that, try that. You're like, oh, this dog has strong memory, so we're going to do this more frequently or this less frequently. Oh, I have a problem solver. Okay, yeah. let's set up problems that solve, that get me them to for them to learn the thing I want them to learn, not the five things I didn't want them to yeah. learn before. It, it helps you kind of be the puppet master of, yes. your, of, of your dog's life. <laughs> yes, exactly. The So... What, uh, you know, as I push you now, uh, cause I, I always, every time I see you, I'm always like, Hey, remember you can only decoy for so long, <laughs> you know, and like you brought up detection is something that's always going to be around. Is there a type of detection that you've liked or that's that you're kind of drawn to most or is it just kind of, Oh man, that's, you know, I, I was drawn to yeah i kind of look at tracking like detection as yep. well you know i put it in the, i know most don't but it's yeah, to me no, it's yeah. in that that same they're using thing. their nose they're using yeah. their nose to find something yeah. right um I, i'm i really like tracking mm-hmm. i go through waves too though right so sure. it's like you know i'm really into tracking right now he likes tracking until it's negative whatever in yeah. canada where well, he lives <laughs> summer, summer's around the corner so right now exactly. i like tracking yeah uh, winter time i like working inside <laughs> building clean. yeah um but yeah, so I, w- I would kind of say, you know, tracking. Tracking right part now. of it yeah. is what would get you going. Um, yeah, the in you also do some breeding as well, and you've done breeding. Um, has there been things that you've seen as a breeder early on that you're like, oh, this dog it would be, you know, a great detection dog? And if so, what was it that got your attention and did that pan out? Yeah, so so there there have been definitely been things um, that I've seen. I don't really consider myself a breeder because mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I, I don't yeah know, true I see what you're saying yeah breed and like sell puppies yeah you know I have a, a litter maybe every like two years maybe yeah. once a yeah. year yeah. And yeah we keep them to raise them for police work mm-hmm. so um, what I have noticed um, and I've I've been right and probably by fluke sometimes you know for mm-hmm. sure um, I've noticed a finding a dog that is or a puppy really young puppy that's very shows very curious um tendencies um and and likes to kind of wander off on his own mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. I, I found pretty good correlations uh there mm-hmm. to dogs transitioning into successful sure. detection dogs yeah um you know again and it kind of goes back to that that Temple Grandin stuff uh-huh. that, we, that we spoke about those those seeking desires and dogs yes. wanting to get out and and do things and may not even know what they're really getting mm-hmm. into. They're so young, but they just want to go and explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that like a pretty good telltale sign, and, and that's so true. You know, obviously we don't know each other and and like the breeding side of things, like yeah. watching young dogs uh, puppies that well. And it's the same things I look for, you know, I, I look for that dog who pushes themselves out and away from everything. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go experience this world. 
What's over here? What's over there? It's it's also the catch twenty two is, you know, some of those qualities that I like end up being that dog is so independent, doesn't yeah. care about you know, <laughs> and both of uh, friends of mine uh, when Mike uh, Ellis and Ivan were talking uh, about breeding because both of them have done that pretty extensively was you know it's still a little bit of a magic ball you know you don't know what's in the crystal ball here what's going to come out um and you go into it with some assumptions if you look at puppies and you're like okay this is what this is i see these things boy this looks super strong you know this dog is a hard charger really good and all of a sudden you know a year later no not so much and then the, the the one that struggled generally can be maybe the same maybe it blossoms there's like they brought up was those dogs that were in that middle ground that were like yeah you noticed them but you didn't really like turn out to be really good but the to me that made many of these pups successful is who raised them i was i was gonna say that you know just that as well i I think sometimes that like you know michael ellis and and ivan like Mm -hmm. they obviously know what they're doing sure Um, but those middle ground pups, you know, I think sometimes we say like the dogs that are the bottom pups are like, oh, they're no good. And we assume yeah, that uh-huh. and they, they don't blossom because we also kind of give up on them early yes. on. Yes. No, um, I'm, I've been guilty. Yeah. Then then the pups that are kind of the rock stars, I think the opposite happens. And, and a lot of times we put too much on their plate too soon because they are rock stars. We yeah. think they're rock stars. And it's like. I kind of look at them like those um, childhood famous stars that are like, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Didn't Macaulay Culkin. And sure, <laughs> like yeah. We, we, there was way too much going on too early in their life yeah. for them to, uh, and, and those dogs kind of fade out. And those middle dogs, they were kind of just middle dogs. Mm-hmm. So we didn't push them too far, yeah. but we didn't give up on them because Correct. they were still showed some pretty good potential. And that kind of environment fostered them to actually really blossom and, and become who, you know, mm-hmm. they could be. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. So one of the last questions I have for you, um, since you, like, you're like you very neutral to detection in the sense that you know, you're know you learning it and you're seeing things, and as a trainer in your background, seeing a lot of behaviors, what, have you, what, what do you see the gap most times? And you've been a part of some of the seminars you go to and your work in the detection section. What are some of the things that you see consistently as – an issue when it comes for handlers working their detection dogs? What is something that's pretty consistent that you see? And you've been around the United States in different places. Yeah. So you've got a chance to see West Coast, East Coast, you know, mm-hmm. Midwest. What is, it, what, is, what is a fairly strong constant that you've noticed? Uh, I think that it's, it's funny because I think there's two constants. Okay, um, good. I think one of the constants is that there is an extreme overwhelming amount of white noise communication um, and direction and handler just always involved in yelling at their dog, not yelling, but do this and check here and check here and good job. And um, all of that. And I call it white noise because that's just what it becomes. It's just background or you might as well, you know, be saying nothing. Um, And then on the other side, uh, I feel that there's not enough communication. Sure. (laughs) Right. I feel like it's like, okay, it's, it's, you know, this dichotomy. Or one extreme over yeah, the other. Either either this or that. And I think where the most success that I've seen have been those ones that meet, like, in the happy medium. And, and you know, there's enough communication. I mean, it's effective and it's 
very cons- like precise yep. in, in what that communication is. Um, those are the ones that that to me are, are you know are working and, and doing really well. It's the communication that's meaningful, and it's the communication where you let yourself just go with the dog in the sense of you're letting the dog do its job. You're interpreting that that dog and what it's doing. You direct as needed, not like like you said, check here, check here, check here, and you're doing, or you're walking backwards, blocking, you know, everywhere the dog wants to sniff, and you're not letting it, you know, it's that balance. Yeah, I, I, I tell, like, the guys that I work with, like, it's like a Tesla on autopilot. Yeah. Right, like, you let the Tesla drive and, and do its mm-hmm. things, but if there's a semi that's coming <laughs> into your lane, yeah. like, maybe take over for a second, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like, that's what that's that medium that you want to be that Tesla yeah. on autopilot. No, you do. That's, that's actually a great analogy, and because, like you said, you know, me and some of the guys have been doing it longer than me. So in their careers, it was heavy detail. We yeah. had to do it what they call the inverted V: start low, go high, yeah, go, and yeah. they go up and down. Uh, some sing to the dog as they're searching. Lots of verbal communication. Uh, lots of body language communication. Yeah. Then the pendulum swung when when I would say probably the generation I'm in now, which is the ones in their 40s and, you know, the, the 2000s where we're like, we don't want to detail all the time. My dog should be able to find it. We went the complete other direction and <laughs> just stood in a doorway and said, go find it. And we stand there and the dog just walks around the room. We're like, nothing here. And you're like, you didn't check. You did, your dog didn't stick his nose in anything. You're like, yeah. well, he didn't tell me, so it must not be here. <laughs> so, you know, and we had to find like, okay, like just like you said, my I want my Tesla to be on autopilot, but my hands are still on the wheel. Yeah. I can take over if I have to. Um, and it was part of those conversations we had at this seminar and ones I've shared recently with the interview with Tobias and Mike Ellis, where we need to communicate certain things mm-hmm. like, okay, dog, I want you to do this, go search. Mm-hmm. And if while you're searching X, Y, or Z happens, what should you do? I'm going to keep searching. Okay. Now, dog, you find odor and you are giving me whatever indication position you're giving me. And if I stand still, what should you do? Keep search or keep on or keep your indication. If you were searching, keep searching. But if you're at odor, stay at odor. Yeah. If I open my pocket and hear Velcro, what should you do? Keep at at odor. If I tap the wall down here, or if whatever the thing is, it's either keep searching or be at odor until or as you hear communication. Where are so many. Um, where we've all made errors is the dog does something and we don't give any feedback. Yeah. And then with the lack of feedback, the dog does something that we either haven't seen or we don't, it causes ambiguity to us, which causes handlers to go, well, I think there's something over here or I see interest there in the, in these behaviors come out of the lack of communication. Yeah. And, and it's the balance of that communication, like we were talking about in that earlier part and in today's uh, debrief with all the students was, hey, dog, when you're at odor, I'm going to give you good, you know, and the good just means stay there. And in lieu of anything else, you heard good, you at least you're there. Mm-hmm. I have I have now freedom to like, let me just, I don't know, <laughs> I want to do it. But the dog has feedback. Um we got to that point because early on we told them that this typically means that it's not a reward. It's just, hey, keep doing that. Everything's good. 
you will probably hear your condition reinforced, or, or you might have a ball fly over your head. Yeah. But as we talked about, and give some listeners a little bit about this, because we talked about that. I'd love them to hear you say this. When we don't use that audible condition reinforcer, what happens for those that are trying to throw a reward in? What are the things that typically happen or that the dog picks up on? Yeah, like when we don't control those those audible kind of, you know, our marker essentially, yep. um, and we're throwing balls mm-hmm. uh, over the dog's shoulder. But one of the, the risks of that is that there are still audible <laughs> markers, right? Like the dog, uh-huh. th- there's a lot of time that passes when that ball is in the air uh-huh. um, until the ball hits the wall in front of that dog, uh-huh. right? So, you know, it, the sound of the ball going through the air, you uh-huh. taking the ball well, out of your out, pouch, yeah. you all of these things were, were you kind of... You walking around behind the dog yeah. now because you were in a different position, so, yeah. You getting up close to the dog, yeah. um, you know, those things can start to become, again, signals to mm-hmm. the dog that, mm-hmm. oh, this is what's about to happen, mm-hmm. Um now, just like everything else in, in dog training, you know, the answer is, is to me, is it, it's never an absolute. Right? Correct. I think sometimes um, throwing the ball yep. is, is the option, is, yeah. is a really good thing. I think sometimes. It's the best option, depending on the situation. You know, using that, that uh, your, your terminal marker and getting mm-hmm. the dog to return to you is the best option. And, mm-hmm. I, and having, what's more important to me is having the option correct right not just being locked into mm-hmm. i throw one the ball or the other or i do this mm-hmm. well you know i love posing that challenge to handlers when i say to them why can't you have both mm-hmm. couldn't there be plenty of situations where one or the other is advantageous to that search or that area or whatever it is and how nice would it be to be able to say okay this is much safer for me to give my audible signal to come back to me. Yeah. Or this is pretty safe. I can, you know, my dog's got a good indication. I'm going to come up and just drop that toy right over them. And the dog understands, hey, you might come up, you might be back, but the one thing I should do is just stay here versus that constant guessing. What are you doing? And because we become so predictable Mm -hmm. that they know we're going to do one of these things. And that's the problem. I say it's predictable, but what we do is the unpredictable part. (laughs) Is it the movement? Is it the staring? And did we go, you know, and I love you, you heard me say it to the handlers and I will say this to the listeners. Why are you told not to stand still when you're searching? And of course the number one answer is I don't want to cue my dog. So I say to you, if you're in the law legal side of things, say that in court. <laughs> say that you don't stand still because you standing still might cue your dog. See how well that goes over on the legal side of things. My challenge to you is why can't you stand still? Why aren't you training the dog to accept whatever it is you do? Yeah, standing and, still, moving, jumping up and down, sitting and down. Just oh, stay yeah. searching or just stay on indication. But we avoid those things through, oh, I won't stand still. So we stand still and we're running in place. Yeah. And we, we call it we're not standing still. It looks like we're crushing grapes. Why are we accepting these things from trainers that are just band-aids to the problem that we failed to address, which is what we just said, dog. When I tell you to go search, you search until you find something or you tell me there's nothing here. Mm -hmm. And if you do find something, do whatever I want you to do. Sit, stand, lay down, whatever it is. Do that until 
reward is given to you until or until further notice. Exactly. <laughs> Why do we cover up these errors with these other little band-aids that are worthless? And, and I think that pushes into when we're, we talked about, you know, the op- option to, you know, throw the ball right over the dog's shoulder or to release them and, mm-hmm. and bring them back to me. Not only for, you know, operational use is, is that beneficial, but I yeah. think in training, yeah. right? Saying, hey, my dog looks like he's predicting that that ball is going to get thrown over his shoulder mm-hmm. right now. So let me throw him a curveball and, and release him back to me. Correct. Oh, he's predicting. It gives you the opportunity to kind of fine-tune things and, and, and play with things in a training uh, sense as well. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about in the obedience. If I tell my dog to sit or lay down and to stay there, I when I walk back my distance, I don't always call them to me because after three or four times doing that, what are they going to expect? I'm going to call it. So we have the ability when we're teaching obedient positions, sometimes I'm going to walk to you and give you reward. Sometimes I'm going to call you to me. Sometimes I may walk a circle around you. By having the requirement of do this until further notice, until you hear your condition reinforcer or the reward is delivered, it's clear. But if we are so predictable in what we do, the dog is going to constantly try to guess that predictability part. Whatever it is, they can try to link themselves to this has been reinforcement's going to happen, which is whether, and I've seen it both in professional and the sport world, is the dog is reading you to try to figure out when you're going to give one of those four to five, maybe more antecedent or pre-signals, mm-hmm. that means reward is probably coming. Yeah. Versus, they're, they're, they're way better at reading us than we are at reading them. Yeah, you know the line I give in the cognition class. So, the uh, but no. So I'm I'm glad to. This was a fun conversation, and I know we'll have we'll have more of these, and uh, and I hope the uh, and I hope for the listeners, the last part we talked about kind of pushes you to up your training. Don't accept the answer of, well, I need to do this to to not to have this happen. Your dog, if you say go do go find this. Go find this until you either find it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And if you do find it, keep that no matter what I do. Push yourself in training to proof these things, to yeah. get to that point where there's that clarity of communication. It is that simple, dog. I can hold the ball in my hand. I can hold the whatever toy. I can have food in my pouch. I can do all these things while you're searching. You just keep searching. Yeah. But we have to baby step to get there. I don't expect you guys to go walk around bouncing a ball while you're searching and it be successful. You have to build, you know, back to that plan. We have to have that plan to get us there. So I hope listeners uh, hear that. Now, how do people find you? How do they get a hold of you? Yeah. Um, so grassrootsk9.com. Um, it's letter K number nine uh, dot com is, you know, our, our main hub. Um, we have a, a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Um, my personal Instagram is K9 underscore Mike. Um, and then we have, you know, grassroots K9 mm-hmm. you know, on Instagram as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any questions, any follow-ups from here, uh, you know, be, be forgiving, but uh, <laughs> I will get back to you. It may take yeah. me a little bit, but I, I promise I'll, I will get back to you. I mean, Cam, thanks for, you know, having me on here. Of course. Um, and I'm going to be dragging you more into the detection world, you know, little by little, because, you know, I, I know uh, being a former decoy all the time myself, you're allowed to get fat and out of shape all you want and all your broken parts are just going to be broken. So embrace it and turn into detection where you can get there away with a little bit more. There we go. We can't, like we, how many old decoys do you see? It's probably less than you can count on one hand. Yeah, so I, I feel a bit old. <laughs> As you say, you're 30 something years old. But uh, no, thank you for coming on. And then again, for everybody listening, if you are interested uh, and having myself or Mike out to your area to do our puppy and young dog development seminar, 
reach out to, you know, you can reach out to either one of us through the websites. Um, and I want people to understand it's what's really cool about the puppy and young dog development. It is for not just detection dogs. It is if you have a protection dog, PSA, police canine, uh, you're a, a person who enjoys raising young dogs. We hit all of these topics. And this search and rescue dogs. Absolutely. Right in, in fact, there's a few of them in, in this seminar right now. So uh, if you raise young dogs, this is really for you. This is because we see the gap that exists in the dog world, which is yeah. the process of raising dogs. There's plenty of breeders, great genetics that are out there, lots of good trainers, but very few have focused on sharing information on that rearing part, taking it from the eight weeks to a year old and what are some tools that can be successful. And that's what me and Mike try to share. So if you're interested in that, let us know. Absolutely. So until the next episode, everybody, thank you for listening to Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. 